Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 67. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Sir Stephen Wilkinson. The reason why he's a sir is at the end of the podcast. He runs an investment company by the name of Good and Prosper, which specializes in acquiring distressed small and medium-sized enterprises, primarily in Germany. His outlook on business is shaped by the Austrian School of Economics, having read at an early age a copy of The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. He's also a founding member of the Small Giants community. This US-based organization focuses on companies that choose to be great instead of big. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. I'm a big fan. Oh, well, thank you. Well, the uh, the check's in the post, as always. And have you read Tim's <laughs> book as well? I have. All right. I've, not, only, not, not only have I read it, I've, it's one of those few books that I've gifted. You've gifted? Oh, wow. Well, I've gifted it. Tim, how about signing a copy for Stephen? I'd be absolutely delighted to do that. Um, on the topic of on the topic of books, I have a, a book in front of me, um, and I'm, the question is probably going to seem a bit gauche, but I'll ask it anyway. So the book in question is called Small Giants, and it's written by a guy called Bo Burlingham. Now, would it be fair to say that you have some connection with this world? I would. It would be fair. Um, yeah. Bo, great friend, and I was privileged um, serendipitously, but I was privileged to be part of a group of entrepreneurs in the US who set up a an organization based on the principles of that book in which Bo is intimately involved. Um, and indeed, a number of the companies that are profiled in the book are also founding members of that organization called the Small Giants Community. It's an amazing organization. 10 years old this year. We started off in 2009. And the book came out in December of 2005, I think. I read it in January of 2006. I immediately gifted 100 copies to my business network in Germany because it described a world and a form of leadership that I described in Germany as Mittelstand 2.0, which was a, a way of, of rooting companies in their local environment and developing them as, as living entities within their communities, within the workforce, within their, within their supplier and customer organizations in a way that was beneficial to the organization and to everybody involved in it, and that put culture ahead of growth. That was the, the main sort of determining characteristic of, of the businesses in the organization, that all of them at some stage had come to a point where they had to make a choice between continued exponential growth and the culture that they had developed. And every single one of the businesses in, in the Small Giants organization has come up with some formula, some way of dealing with that dichotomy. And it's interesting from the perspective of business owners because not a lot of business owners think you have a choice at that point. Um, and reflecting on it, and understand and making choices around what you want from your business is something that needs to be learned. Often you find out too late that by pursuing growth because it's there, uh, you've lost something very valuable about the way that you wanted to organize your life and your business, which means, and then I'll put a full stop at the end of that sentence, that, which means that you actually have to know what you want 
from your life and your business in order to make that choice. I mean, I, th- I think this is a fascinating topic. We could we could easily devote an entire podcast just to this this, this topic of sort of being being great rather than being big. The, the one reason why it particularly appeals to me is there's there's a chap I don't know if you're familiar with him called Albert Bartlett, who was a professor in um, University of Colorado at Boulder, and this was this was a seminal. There are only a handful of things that have really changed my outlook on life and and the investment world, and Professor Bartlett is definitely one of them. And a friend of mine put me in touch with something called the Crash Course uh, by Chris Martinson. But Albert Bartlett features in that. And the, the Bartlett contention is essentially, I think he was a, I forget if he was a physicist or a mathematician, but he was a hard scientist. And he died, I think, about five, 10 years ago. But he gave a presentation throughout his life that I think he's given something like 10,000 times. So he was really fluent by the time he sort of, you know, he, he was reached the sort of the, the height of his career. And the, the, the presentation, you can find it on YouTube really easily. It's called, it has a slightly um, off-putting title called Arithmetic Population and Energy, but you can find it really easily. And it's had millions of views. And the essence of the Bartlett argument is essentially that for any entity beyond maturity, further growth is either obesity or cancer. So he's saying there should be a natural limit to how big things get, whether that's in the natural world or whether it's in the sort of somewhat artificial world of you know, things impacted by humans. But where I tie this back into particularly a markets context is, first and foremost, in the context of debt. So there is too much debt in the system. I would argue that the primary, primary problem reflected by capital markets in 2008 was, was a buildup of an unsustainable amount of debt globally, both government and corporate debt. And the reason we're in this gigantic mess now is central banks and governments have figured that the only way out is to print even more debt, is to create even more debt. So we're now in this absurd situation where you're getting QE to the power of infinity. Interest rates have gone negative. This is not how markets are supposed to work. What Bartlett argues about is, I mean, he's, he's not coming from, from a completely different dimension. He's talking about things like with the world of natural scarcity and oil and you know, commodities and all the rest of it. But the, the, the point still holds for any, you know, for any entity beyond maturity, further growth is either obesity or cancer. And we're there at a global economic level now. That's, I, I haven't heard of Bartlett, but I will, I will have heard of him and I will have studied him within, by the time I get to lunch. He, he, you're, the phenomenon you're describing is, is something that anybody who has any connection to the natural world knows automatically. I, I do a lot of gardening. I love gardens and I think there's a great there, there are great parallels between between the design of a garden and investing. In any biosphere, any plant that takes on an unnatural amount of resources and grows and grows out of scale, consumes starts consuming more resources than the biosphere will allow, dramatically changes the, the balance within that biosphere and the forces of nature combine to destroy it and to to bring it back to a more sustainable to more sustainable size and you see that everywhere and the only variable in economic life the only variable that is infinitely scalable is capital not one other variable is scalable at even a fraction of that of capital so depending on what you put into the into the middle of any business model you will get 
you will get the sort of you will get limits that are imposed by all the other variables. In other words, if you put money into the middle of a business model or profit, then all the other variables are then subsumed under and will be crushed by capital. And I think that um, you can look at that in, in in any industry. Once you start putting, and in fact, our entire economy, if you put money in the middle and profit as the central variable which around which all others have to be organized, um, then you get the destruction of all the other variables, quality, relationships, um, sustainability, because because capital is has an infinite demand on its scalability. You run the company Good and Prosper. Just to circle back, could you just tell us a, a bit about your journey to that company and, and what you do? I studied literature at Durham, um, German and um, and a, a smattering of economics. I absolutely hated the economics part. I had this wildly left-wing communist professor of economics who hated me and I hated him. So I didn't do very much <laughs> economics at Durham. Um, but so I'm, I, I'm a language person. That's how I started. Um, and I decided very early on that I probably needed to learn something a little bit more practical because my family were convinced that money business and finance was the last possible place on earth that would take me. I decided that was probably somewhere that I would then have to go and prove myself. Um, and I ended up, I got my very first job working for Merrill Lynch in 1987 as a rookie. Just um, before the crash was that or just after? I was the last intake. I was the last intake before the, before the crash. Oh, wow. And they had a hiring, they had a hiring freeze three weeks later or four weeks later. <laughs> and I would have, um, <laughs> that would have been it. But they, uh, they had an, opening in Munich and that's where I was sent um, and I'd always wanted to, to work in Munich I'd always wanted to spend a year there um, I started at Merrill did all my series exams and became fascinated by the the world of finance um, my father would give me one piece of advice which is he said, it doesn't matter what you do just master it once you've started it so I felt obliged to at least stay on in that industry until I figured out how things worked. What a brilliant um, bit of advice that is. That's fantastic. So simple, but so important. Yeah, it's good that way, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I found, I found two things. I found out two things very quickly. Number one, talking to people who had studied proper economics, and I was 23 when I left, for Germany. Talking to people who were studying economics in Germany and friends in the UK, I was asking them, what should I be reading? What books should I be reading? Should I be reading Adam Smith? Or should I be reading Keynes? Or should I be reading Friedman? And I was absolutely flabbergasted that nobody that I talked to who was studying economics had read any of the classics. And I went back to my father who read economics and and um, and law at Manchester in the 1950s, and he got, gave me a pile of books that um, that he still had and in his library, Bentham and and Smith and Locke and and I just started reading those, and I assumed that that's what everybody read when they read economics, and I was gobsmacked, and and still am gobsmacked at how very little understanding there is of the classics in social economics or political economy amongst people who study economics. So I'm completely autodidactic. You know, I, I've made my money working as a capitalist and 
I, by, I started as a baby broker. Um, and you don't learn anything except how to screw people over in that industry. But I was fascinated by the world I was in, moved on to wealth management, was head of investment policy for a very large German family office business um, called Turn and Texas, which you may have heard of, um, and left after I had decided 10 years later um, that I probably learned enough and I was desperate to run my own balance sheet. I, the, the one thing that I wanted to do more than anything else was to run my own balance sheet, make my own decisions, my own capital allocation decisions. Um, and I did started that in 1997, which was 22 years ago. And I have been investing from that balance sheet or a, a move on from there in a different, different corporate form, now in Good and Prosper, for 22 years. And I think the, the most important influence in all my reading was picking up a copy of The Intelligent Investor in 1988, reading it and going, ah, that makes sense. And I think at the beginning of Seth Klarman's book on value investing called Margin of Safety, um, and I have a copy which I understand is worth thousands of dollars on Amazon. Um, he writes, value investing is something you either get immediately or you never understand it. And for me, it was the most natural way of thinking about investing so that I could imagine clicked immediately and it's determined everything that I've done since that. Determined my reading, it's determined my investing, it's determined my approach to business, it's determined my thinking around balance sheets and about economics and it has all been conditioned by that serendipitous meeting with Benjamin Graham's book um, in 1988. We might as well stop it there. Yeah, that's it. And so thank you very much for coming on the show. (laughs) My pleasure. (laughs) Amazing. So you use it to value companies as well because you don't just invest, you you actually buy companies. Yeah, Um, somewhere along the line, I think it was 2001, in the just as the, the the new economy was starting to unravel, I've been I've been made my first sort of serious investments. I started in 1997 and just started looking. And I was looking at where I was, which was in Munich. So I was looking at German companies, and it was at the start of the new economy boom. I had an immediate seizure um, from reading from my reading of previous booms. I could sort of. I could classify what was happening very quickly. I'm not very technologically minded, so it was an excuse not to think too deeply about these internet stocks. All I did know was that this was not a value investing environment. But what I found were a couple of companies, let's say 10, 15, 20 mid-sized German companies who were completely ignored by the market and were trading at ridiculous, Ridiculous levels. You know, one, two, three PEs, fifty percent of net cash on the balance sheets. Big companies, leaders in their markets, and I rang up their CFOs and CEOs and asked them you know, the background story. If they wouldn't mind talking to somebody who had very little money but was interested in making investments, and I had some amazing conversations, absolutely amazing conversations with with C- CFOs and CEOs who were who were so frustrated. They were looking at 
20-year-olds with valuations of billions. And there they were running companies with plant and equipment worth that, trading at fractions of their um, of their book value with absolutely no comprehension of why of how the world why the world was treating them the way that they were treating them why the analysts were ignoring them why nobody was interested in them and you could pick up some absolutely amazing bargains um during that period just because nobody was was interested so i managed to avoid any connection with with the internet stocks and that was i think probably my most valuable lesson in thinking for myself. Um, and I remember giving a speech. I was invited as a sort of joker to, um, to a, a meeting of the Munich Chamber of Commerce. And they had a head of AOL and they had someone from Microsoft and they had a professor of technology from somewhere. And then they had me. And my job was sort of you know, the, the clown in, in the Shakespearean tragedy just to provide a little bit of light relief because I gave a speech on the railway stocks of uh, 1847. Fantastic. I think it was 1846. Yeah. Um, and I took out a number of charts um, that I had, I think I'd picked them up from a great book that had just been published at that time called Devil Take the Hindmost. Um, I don't know whether you remember that, but it was, a, um, it was an analysis of sort of manias and stock market booms and crashes over the years. It's really well written. And there were some great charts in there taken from financial press in sort of mid-1840s. And I just threw the quotes up onto the wall. Um, and there were quotes like, um, amazing new technology, connecting humans across the world or across the country, people, the new, new um, drivers for growth. And I put all these headlines up on the, on the wall and asked, the audience, where they were from, where those quotes are from. And everybody said, well, they were from, you know, from now, from the papers, from Financial Times often. And I said, well, they work in the Financial Times all the time, but they were from 150 years ago. And I then showed the number of IPOs that had taken place in those two years prior to the bust of 1847, the number of, the, the number of promoters, and some famous stories from that time, and mapped them onto the Neue Markt, which was the, the German equivalent of the, um, of the NASDAQ. And they were almost identical lines. And you could see, you could see what happened to the number of IPOs and the prices of them um, in the years after. And I said, you know, on balance of probability, that's, what's, that's probably what's going to happen. You will find a lot of criminal behavior will have happened, as it always does in these stock promotions. And I was laughed off the stage. I was going to say, and did I they was, try and bundle you out? Absolutely. I, w- I was aggressively screamed at by one young one young man who definitely put all his money on on margin into AOL and a couple of other stocks, literally screaming at me saying I had no idea and this is going to change the world and there was how dare I be so Luddite and and I, it was no point in making the point that there is a huge difference between the dynamics of a technology and its ability to change the world and the price you pay for it. Yeah. You know, that, that, that crucial difference between price and value, which I think has been at the heart of my understanding of investing throughout the last 25 years. It's that constantly asking the question, what is price? Price is usually determined. You've got it. It's what's on offer. But value, 
understanding intrinsic value is absolutely crucial. And if you don't think really, really hard about it, you are always going to land on the losing side. So it's, a, it's an object lesson in same circus, different clowns, or different circus, same clowns. I'm not sure which is the, the two. I haven't got a, a, an anecdote that's as good as that. The anecdote I've got from early 2000 is there used to be a website called fuckedcompany.com. <laughs> oh, there we go. The rating's gone again. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Our clean rating is gone forever. Never, never to be. Probably got an asterisk between the F and the C. <laughs> well, we, we can actually do it per episode now, whereas before we couldn't. And so it just depends on whether anybody swears. But so that's it. It's gone for this one. There we go. Oh, it's gone for this one. So the, so the, 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 the beauty of fuckedcompany.com was that it originally started out as uh, a dot-com Deadpool. In other words, you'd nominate companies, dot-coms in the States, and then the more magnificently they flamed out with gigantic amounts of human misery and chaos and capital loss attached, the more points you got. So that was how it started. And then it developed... It developed a kind of nefarious second life as a as a chat room bulletin board for people to talk nonsense about failing dot coms. And my all time favorite anecdote: there was a guy. Needless to say, nobody posted there using their real names. So there was a guy posting under the under the nom de plume Stanford MBA, and he said, "We've got it. We've got it. We've we've cracked the business model. We've got a business that'll lose money on every sale, but we'll make up for it in volume." And I thought yeah, that's that's that's, that's absolutely the new economy approach. And you know that was that was the case back in you know two thousand two thousand and one. And it's and it's come back in time for things like you know Netflix and and Uber and Tesla. And it, it's 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 fascinating this is, because this is, I, I came across this great great quote. I can't remember who who provided it, but it's basically the idea that value investors operate on the basis that nothing ever changes. And growth investors operate on the basis that everything is going to change. And it's trying to work away between the two without, whilst keeping your sanity. If, if I have one quotation that, that defined my, my thinking around business and investing, and it really doesn't matter to me whether they're public or private. I mean, they're, they're, there's a, a whole different challenge and opportunity within private businesses, and I'm sure we'll get onto that later, is, um, is Buffett's quotation uh, when he said that I'm a better investor for being a businessman. I'm a better businessman for being an investor. And it's those two, the combination of those two disciplines that allow you to make extraordinary returns within, within business investing. Um, and understanding the dynamics of both of those aspects of you know, what, is, what is investment and capital allocation and where do returns come from in business that allow you to make the right sort of decisions and to understand the difference between price and value. And my, my favorite business model is, is, do you remember if I say Bialystok and Bloom, does it mean anything to you? The producers. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> the Bialystok and Bloom model is one that I'm always on the lookout for. And it starts with large-breasted Swedish secretaries. <laughs> Anytime when you go into a company and you find that there are beautiful secretaries sitting there, my immediate, my immediate response is, ah, this may be a Bjellestock and Bloom. <laughs> with regard to sort of valuing companies, there was a quote, 
or there was a cup, cup, cups, cup size is clearly the primary metric. Exactly. Cup, <laughs> we, are the, we are the home of the we are the home of the double D investor. Well, as a technical analyst, <laughs> I look for double tops, but for different reasons. <laughs> but there's there's um, I, I'm pretty sure it's in Market Wizards. There's a a stock investor who was saying that in a similar way he was having an interview with the CEO or interviewing the CEO of a company, and he wrote a note, scribbled a note on a very expensive piece of letterhead and then just chucked it in the bin. And it said, it's, it sort of informed everything about what that company's attitude was like. In other words, he was very wasteful of, of you know, expensive piece of resources. And therefore that, that trickled down to the company. I think it was one of the guys who was shorting companies and he made money that way. But everybody has their own sort of, method of of analyzing the markets and then looking for extra little signals that that kind of back up what they're looking for it also reminds me a little bit of the of the joke that uh, two economists are walking down the road and one of them says look there's 50 pounds on the floor and the other guy says no there isn't because if there was somebody would have picked it up by now picked it up yeah i heard that that, that story told of professor is it Markiel? the um but Markiel. Um, yeah. Stocks, stocks of long um, run. Yeah, yeah, and so that reminds me of your 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 story about the Munich companies that were undervalued by a massive amount. I'm actually learning about value investing through Tim's influence, so I've started reading the books, and it is very very compelling stuff, I have to say. And to hear that the PE ratio was was two is insane, given what we've what we're looking at these days. The stock, the stock was called Corners, K-R-O-N-E-S, and it was a family-owned company. They had uh, preferred, the only stock that was available was preferred stock. They had had a capital increase um, and raised 80 million Deutschmarks two years prior to that in the summer of um, 1995, I think. They'd had the, the rights issue, um, and they placed it on the market, I think, I'm guessing, summer. And in October, they announced a write-off on their Brazilian plant for, lo and behold, 80 million Deutschmarks, um, which, you know, was, um, which was nicely caught by the, um, um, by the capital increase that they'd had. So they had no impairment of their balance sheet, and they just stuffed their shareholders because all their new ones. And the market was absolutely furious with them. Because they said you knew this was going to happen all along, and you didn't disclose. And this is in the this in the olden days when the disclosure rules weren't quite so onerous, and nobody nobody would have ever have come up with the with the idea of having a, a lawsuit in Germany against a, against a public company. And they sort of shrugged their shoulders and just got on with life and said, "Well, you know, you know bad luck." And then were horrified to see that the, all the the analysts uh, suddenly turned negative on them. Um, their share price was dumped. It was only a, it was thinly traded, although it was a significant company. They did two billion Deutschmarks in turnover, I think, at that table, one point eight. And so they were, you know, a significant supplier. They're the largest. They're the Rolls Royce of the bottling plants. Um, they provide all the, the equipment for for bottling um, for Coca Cola and for they, they make the machines based in southern Germany. And the, the share price had dwindled to, I think, five or six Deutschmarks at that time, which was less than the cash they had on the balance sheet, and put them on a PE of, as I say, two, I think, two and a half, three. 
The share price subsequently over the next five to six years increased to 60 euros, 65 euros, I think, which just which gave me my first insight into the huge spring effect of buying at deep discount and then having that transformed. And there always has to be some transformatory catalyst. And in this case, it was a new CFO who'd come in um, from a larger company who was tasked with modernizing the company and making it more capital market friendly. But the power of the business was there for anybody to see in the balance sheet, just nobody was interested in it for the reasons that I've explained. And the macroeconomic environment in which nobody was interested in businesses that actually made things and made money. If we fast forward to today, where are you looking for value? Well, I had a, a transformative experience in 2001 um, when I bumped into somebody on a board um, that, of a company that was supposed to be set up to capitalize on what the promoter of the company, the the CEO, uh, saw as being a huge raft of opportunities in bus tech stocks. And he, he assembled a board of three people, a supervisory board in a German AG. One of them was a restructuring expert. One of them was a corporate lawyer. And one of them was an investment expert, which was me. Um, and I got on really well with the guy who was a um, with the restructuring expert who had made his money buying small, medium-sized businesses in Germany, either asset-stripping them or turning them around. And he said to me, I want to do what I'm doing, and I have been doing successfully with small businesses. I want to, I want to scale up, and I want to do this with other people's money and, and in larger companies, because I think there's a big opportunity. So we partnered and bought a shell company. I said to him, the best way, he said, and by the way, this whole private equity nonsense of 80-20, when the investors get 80 and I get 20, he said, I'm, I don't do that. I, um, I, I want, I'll do it the other way around. And so what can you do? What, what can we do together? And I came up with a, a structure for him. I said, if we buy a shell company and you're as good as you say you are, and we start doing the first deals for a euro and you can turn them around, then that should create enough interest and intrinsic value in order to to make a public company worthwhile. And it was really, really successful, really successful. We took a shell company that we paid, I think, 450,000 euros for. And I think at the peak, it had a valuation of about 1.6, 1.7 billion, and a turnover, an aggregate turnover of something like four and a half billion at the peak. And I, I watched him buying companies at distressed value from owners who, for one reason or the other, needed and wanted to get rid of those businesses before they went bust. So they were effectively providing a service mostly to concerns, large conglomerates, who were getting rid of businesses that no longer fitted their strategic purpose, that were costing them money, and that they, in their infinite wisdom, had decided to um, liquidate at full liquidation costs. In other words, they would look at every single contract that the business had, its employment contracts, its rental contracts, its, its long-term obligations, fully price the liquidation of those, take a reserve, and then just start dismantling it. And he would come in at that point when they'd taken the reserve and put the budget up and said, I'll do it for half the price. So you give me, I don't know, 25 million instead of the 50 you've budgeted, we'll take the business off your hands for one euro plus all your 
corporate debt, all the debt and shareholder loans that you put in. And we will affect the restructuring. They would rewrite back those reserves so they would look as if they'd made a profit in the next, uh, in the next accounting period. And we would have a business with a pool of capital to fund the restructuring. And he was really, really good. And, I, and I, I learned so much from him. I learned that the speed with which you restructure and the quality of the team that you have to do that is absolutely essential. And what you're effectively doing is arbitraging. You're arbitraging liquidation values to going concern values. So the moment that you, you're buying it, you're buying things, all the assets on the balance sheet at liquidation value, which is always substantially below book value. So you're looking at every single item on the balance sheet and asking what would it be worth if I had to sell it under duress now? Um, and I can tell you some really great stories of how liquidators value stuff that with just a quick tweak suddenly becomes much more valuable. If you're interested, I can give you one or two examples of that. But we were effectively arbitraging that. And uh, one of the things that we discovered was that there is nothing that a, an ambitious manager in a, in a large company wants to do less than get held up by dealing with a liquidation or an insolvency or a dismantling of a company. It costs time. It's messy. It always involves large legal and tax issues. And if he can get rid of it to somebody, you can just take it off his hands and he can go on and do what corporate managers love doing most, which is looking for new shiny objects um, of growth and excitement um, that will allow them to shine um, in their board and in their, with their colleagues and in the market. Um, and tidying up messes never qualifies for that. You never get any, any gold stars for tidying up a mess. So might it be something like inventory that they've got that they have to sell um, because it's at fire sale values, it's valued, say, at 10% of what it, what it would normally be worth. But if, you're, if you moved in, you'd be able to get closer to, say, you know, 40%, and that difference is just a huge profit. If you, I looked at a textile company once, and the, the textile company it made knitwear, jumpers, um, basically. And the, it was in liquidation, and there was a very large stock of unfinished goods on the books, the largest position in the balance sheet. These were woolen jumpers. And the one thing that were, they were missing was the label and the stitching for the brand. Okay? All they were missing. That was a small additional value step that some work that needed to be done stitching and then you would have had the finished article but it was perfunctory it, it would have worked was, as a jumper beforehand before oh yeah, track, it was yeah. A, it was a jumper. if you've got a jumper on it was a jumper it just yeah. didn't have the label at the back it didn't have the little brand stitched into it yeah the liquidator looked at that as unfinished goods and the unfinished goods there is a metric that they use which is to that you do it by weight so this, so the jumpers were being were being priced on the weight of the wool. Now, the value that you're adding between wool and jumper is is considerable. Yeah. But this thing was wearable. You know, you, you could have bought the stock. If we did. You could have bought the company. You'd have had the stock. 
you'd have paid liquidation values for the for the jumpers. Um, you know, we're talking about five six million euros worth of stock, and just given it to a hundred friends to go and flog it on market, you know, flea markets on the weekend or car boot sales, you would have made about 30 to 40%. If you'd have put it back into, you've taken it from 10% of original value to 40%. But simply by investing a little bit of time and stitching the labels in and putting the brand on, you were suddenly back at full value again. And those are inconsistencies and inefficiencies in pricing that are available Every day, if you know where to look for them. What? Every day. So this happens now, you're saying? Oh, yeah. Every day. Every single day. If you look at the statistics for companies in distress or companies in solvency and administration, there are businesses going bankrupt or going into administration every single day. Now, many of those are not worth continuing. They are deeply in debt. They, are, they don't have the assets on the balance sheet, but there are plenty that do. And there are hundreds of reasons why businesses go into administration. Competence, tiredness, illness, foibles, <laughs> the people who own them, they're, they're humans. And so wherever you have businesses, you've got human stories. And I was just thinking about your story of the CEO who wrote on the expensive notepaper. Uh, I was once told by one of my small giant friends, a guy called Jack Stack, who's written an amazing book called The Great Game of Business, um, who said to me, you know, all accounts, our habits in numbers. If you break down every single expense item, you can trace it back to a habit. And, and accounts and individual accounts are just agglomerations of habits, just how people spend money and that how they spend money is how they is 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 part of their character. So that the if you add all the accounts together, you can start seeing patterns of habits of how people think and spend and allocate the money that they have in the business. And once you have that, then you suddenly realize that the balance sheets are a story. They're telling a story of, of human foibles and of human characteristics that you can read. And that's why, that's why I love it. So in any business, you will find that it's, you've got to look for the habits and the characteristics that have led it to where it is. And an understanding of, of the five levels of valuation, starting at liquidation fire sale, moving up through book value, which is an accounting, an accounting measurement, through to mark to market IFRS, which is an attempt by accountants to model what they think is the real world, and then going on into intrinsic value, which is how business owner and business investor looked at, at the value of a business. You know, from, from fire sale to intrinsic value, there are different stages, and you have to understand at what stage the business, where the business is and what it's being priced at um, in order for you to make an arbitrage between you, one of those levels. If you'd had your time over again with the knowledge that you were going to enter the world of investment, business and investment, which subjects would you prefer to, if, assuming you would have preferred to have chosen different subjects, which subjects would you have chosen to, to read instead of, say, languages or literature? Uh, psychology and history. Exactly. Well, that's exactly. I mean, I, you, you've exactly matched with the response I was going to give you, which is exactly the same. I think the biggest disservice that economics does, um, and there are many, it's it's it, it, it inculcates the idea that there is such a thing as Homo economicus, 
who does not exist. Because if you look at the, the business world, well, just look at the world in general, but the business world in particular, there is no reason to assume that we're anything other than just the nicely evolved apes. But we're still basically more ape than, than sort of calculating machine. So the idea that everyone is running... I, I have not yet, in all my years of being in business, I have not yet met Homo economicus. Or rather, I, I bumped across him once or twice, and the biggest... Am I allowed to use the word fuck up? Because you've used yeah, the word fuck up. The biggest fuck ups that I have seen in business have been made by people who think they are behaving entirely rationally. I think Rory Southern would like that. He'd be very interested in, in, the, in that, uh, that thought process. And, and I love stories. I'm, my, my, my passion is, is literature and stories. And the reason that I love being in business and my bit of the business is because I get to read stories all the time. Reading balance sheets and reading corporate accounts is story time. You can't read one by itself, but if you start reading a number of chapters over a couple of years, you get a story. And the story is never divorced from the people. In fact, it's made up of the people. And balance sheets are nothing other than the repository of hundreds and thousands of decisions made by people. Bets, bets gone wrong, bets done well, capital allocation decisions, which sounds really technical, but it's just an, a fancy word for you know, putting your money where your ideas are. What are your ideas? And your ideas are always aspirational. They're always, they're always a view of the world. They're always a, 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 a consensus or a big bet or a daring bet. Um, and sometimes they go right and sometimes they go wrong. And I haven't yet figured out um, whether there's a formula behind getting it right and getting it wrong. But all I do know is that the integrity of the people making those decisions is absolutely crucial in determining what the outcome is going to be. How do you deal with creative accounting when, I mean, this is something for both you and Tim, when you're reading your accounts and the balance sheet and trying to value the company, I always imagine that the, uh, the accountants can use this creative element to make things look much better than they really are. And you may be thinking that there's value there, but actually there isn't. What's the name of the chap who was writing in the late 80s and early 90s? Um, who I think his name was Smith. Tim Smith? Tim Smith no? he, he went on to, to, to build his own brokerage companies and was, I think, quite, quite a figure in the, in the city. But he's Terry, written, is that Terry Smith? Accounting for growth? Accounting for growth, yeah. He was the guy who, who nailed Polly Peck, I think, in the in the, in the mid eighties. Um, you know, when he writes about accounting, these are really those are the you know, the big fraudulent cases um, in which a a very very clever CEO has stumbled across some formula for usually recognizing revenue before um, before time and usually um, involving hiding expenses in one form or another and, and you know accounting is not it's not desperately complicated it's a language you have to learn but it's not the basic principles are not wild but most businesses 
don't have that level of genius. And if they are well run, they will have conservative accounting policies. And if they are badly run, they will have volatile accounting policies. And just by comparing two or three years, I will be able to tell you, and anybody who has any practice in reading company balance sheets will be able to tell you whether you're dealing with a dodgy character or whether you're dealing with somebody who is straight. Another one of my father's homilies was the P&L is an opinion and cash is a fact. And if you follow the cash in the cash flow statements and reconcile it to the balance sheet and the P&L, you will always get a pretty good idea of whether the company is actually more profitable than it looks or considerably less profitable than it looks. And if that's something you can pick up in five minutes after a lifetime of reading balance sheets. What was it they say on Dragon's Den? I don't know if you like watching it. I personally do. They say turnover is vanity and profit is sanity. Yeah, that's a nice little homily. Um, but I like yeah. your one better. Thank you. I find Dragon's Den appalling. <laughs> uh, I, I, appalling. Why? Why? Because of the... Because it's not how my business world works. And it's, it's very aggressive. It's quite rude. Um, it's not nuanced. And it's, wholly, it's wholly artificial. And, some of the and people it's entirely not, artificial. Not, not that I watch it, but some of the people who have been involved have basically inherited their parents' trailer park business and now consider themselves God's gift to entrepreneurialism. Well, there, there are it's, some people like that. But to be fair, you know, I think the people like the Peter Joneses aren't aren't like that but i i think you also you've got to sit in their shoes sometimes and i i agree with what you're saying to an extent sometimes they are rude and and they're aggressive but they they've probably see they've seen a hell of a lot more than you're seeing on the screen so remember it's all edited down they might have they might have seen 30 companies or 40 companies before lunch and a lot of them would have been a load of bullshit and they, they have to try and cut through to the chase as quickly as they can. And so sometimes that doesn't allow for niceties, especially when they're trying to get the sense of whether somebody's lying to them or not. But what I well, like... Okay, but, what, it, but, but it's entertainment, isn't it? It is, I mean, of course it not, is, yeah. yeah not, no, no, I'm not... It's not business, I'm, it's entertainment. I'm not so saying they, it's anything taking, other than entertainment. They're taking the adversarial aspects of, of business. They are they're, they're creating these, these this stereotype of of an investor and successful businessman. They're pitting them against somebody who's just starting up. And they are, and there's a sort of gladiatorial aspect to it, which has very little to do with the reality of business. That's not this, what, but this, is, this is exactly the point, though. I mean, if, if you remember the, the, early, the first dot-com uh, boom, there was a guy in the States called Jim Kramer. And he was running a thing called the street.com. And I think even now he's on CNBC. Not yes. like yeah, he's the screamer. He's the screamer, yeah. isn't he? And, and, you know, he's basically reduced the business of investing to the basically the, the level of a sort of, you know, uh, a particularly outrageous sports commentator. So in, in like kind of pre-match build-up, it's like this is, I mean, it may be entertaining, but it, it, it's, it's the sort of reductio ad absurdum of, of the business of investing. And it, it, there's a risk that it just, it, just te- it turns everybody, everybody's mindset into mush. If, if people are thinking this is really what the business investment is all about, it's it's a travesty. I think what they're looking at is mainly is the ideas that the individuals come up with. Well, I don't know. I, that's what I look at. I think, oh, that that's that's an interesting idea, or that's never going to work. Like you know, they come up with an app that 
can control your car from inside the house and starts it up and, you know, why on earth would you want that? Okay, maybe once when when it's cold outside and you want to defrost the windows or something, but and you're thinking, this is ridiculous, you know, and they valued it at like £2 million and they're asking for money and how many have they sold? None or, you know, very few. And you, that, that's where, for me, the entertainment comes. It's not it's not that it's it's a reflection of any business at all. It's like, what is this idea? What is the is the person really got something or are okay, they but, just completely delusional? If, 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 but if you, come, if you come from my background and if you have a value investing perspective, and framework within which you make your decisions, you will very quickly come to the conclusion that you cannot invest in a company that isn't one yet, because you have none of my metrics work. You know, I've been asked so often to to invest in in startups or, or new business ventures, and I just can't do it because I have absolutely no framework That's so within which I can make a rational decision because I know what money's worth. You know, I, I know that a euro is worth a euro, but I don't know what an idea is worth. And there's a great little graphic in Derek Sivers' book, the first one that he wrote with a head in the sort of child's head in the sand, where he has a, a an X Y axis with with quality of idea and quality of execution. And an idea is just a multiplier for execution. So you can have a a reasonable idea and great execution will end up with a much, much higher value than a brilliant idea and crap execution. And that sounds trite, but at, at, at the point at which you're supposed to be making venture capital decisions in that sort of dragon's den context, you have absolutely no idea as to how that execution is going to pan out. So, And you really don't know whether the idea is good. So you're looking at, you know, you've got two highly subjective variables with absolutely no framework for making a decision other than your best guess as to future intrinsic value. And I'm not capable of making that decision. I, I just can't. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how other people do it. And I, I have no way of making those decisions, so I don't make them. So you're saying what you really want to do is work in venture capital for the rest of your career? <laughs> not that was, that was <laughs> I couldn't have put it quite as succinctly as that but yeah when so, you asked me uh, incidentally uh, when you were when you were asking me to come on the podcast and you said let's talk about venture capital I I did respond to you and say if we must because yeah. I have a very I have a very clear opinion of what the modern venture capital industry is for most of the people who 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 put themselves in their hands. It is a, it's a modern form of slavery because the odds are so stacked against any founder actually ending up with very much of his idea because of the way the venture capital system is, is basically stacked against them. Venture you, capital... you, you, you only need to watch the social network to get a sense of how that works in, 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 in the real world. I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's, it's an absolute cracker. I have. It can, I mean, I think one of God's big jokes is to put someone with obviously sociopathic tendencies in charge of friendship in the world. Mm. I just, I think he's, <laughs> I think he finds that hugely amusing. So if we, if we look at today then, Stephen, where, where 
where are you are you seeing more opportunities in Germany, less opportunities? Are you seeing opportunities in the UK or have you cast your net further afield to say Japan as Tim has? No. No, I uh I, I haven't. There, there's an element of timing that is as been sort of framing my decision making over the past two years. I I think we're dancing on the edge of a volcano at the moment. Great expression. I feel I'm I'm terrified, to be honest. I, I'm terrified. What I'm terrifies ter- you? Of the 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 fact that our monetary system is spiraling out of control. Nobody has this under control anymore. We we left the principles of sound money a decade ago, um, at the very least. You know, I, I think we probably started leaving the principles of sound money in 1971 when Nixon surprised the world by by taking the dollar of the by reneging on the on the convertibility of of uh, the dollar to gold. And I have the four children, and we've had rabbits. Have you told them about the, Have about. you told them about the Fibonacci sequence yet? <laughs> <laughs> I have actually. Oh, good. Either children or the rabbits. I'm not sure the rabbits <laughs> need to be told. <laughs> the, the rabbits love my Fibonacci theory. But if you open the cage, if you open the cage and let the rabbits go, which we did at one stage, then you will find a very interesting dynamic. The rabbits will stay in their cage for about half a day before they dare to come out. Then they will come out of the cage and stay very close to the cage. Then they will move a little bit further away from the cage. And eventually they will just they'll run. And if you look at the way that governments approach their debt financing, they were very, after 1971, it reminded me exactly of how the rabbits behaved. Now, to start with, they were, they were quite circumspect. And some of them even stayed within their cage. And as, as they got more and more trepid and got further away from the cage, and the cage being the discipline of sound money, having some sort of system in which the exponential ability to create debt had not yet been discovered or even intuited. But over the last... 40 years, 45 years since that date. The rabbits have, getting, have been getting further and further away from the cage and they have completely gone wild now. And there is absolutely no way that we will ever catch them and put them back in the cage again. And they're also fucking everybody. This, everybody. <laughs> this is, we are witnessing a massive rape of the savings generation. You know, we've been told for the past 45 years what to do, to save, to put our money in the banks, to put our money in pension funds, to save. And the only way, not the only way, because it won't work, but the next phase is the wholesale rape and pillage of the savings classes, either through stealth, negative interest rates, depletion of the inability to earn any sort of return on your capital without taking massive risks. Or um, accidental hyperinflation, and it will end. It will end with the with the confiscation in one form or another, either overt or or indirect confiscation. And you know, we will look back in a hundred years and see this period of profligacy, 
which I believe is coming to an end. You know, it, it, it just can't go on at this pace. Money has been debased to the point where it's, it has no indicative value anymore. Um, doesn't mean it's freely available for everybody. You know, that's create that, that's creating opportunities in the business world, but you're asking me what my framework is and buying distressed businesses at the top of the cycle is a recipe for disaster because even if you buy them at the lowest possible price, you still have to deal with the vagaries of the business cycle. Small companies that are in distress, that need restructuring, do not have the wherewithal to weather a storm if it comes you know, within the first six months of you having purchased the business, irrespective of the price that you paid for it. But with regard to value and value investing, why is it that Warren Buffett isn't worried about this and why why not take a longer term view? Of course you can't when you're buying a distressed company, but what about just value investing generally? Why can't you just take a ten or twenty year view? Well if you look at but if if you look at Buffett's focus, and I think one of the things that has been has been most misrepresented about the Buffett phenomenon is that he has had four quite distinct phases in his evolution as an investor. And I think his genius has been his ability to understand the dynamics of his own balance sheet and his cash creation and to morph from one type of investor very, very gently, almost imperceptibly to another type. So he started off as a Walter Schloss, Benjamin Graham, cigar butt um, investor. He moved to a cash flow focus. So he moved from, from low quality at a very low price to better quality at a good price, but with a high focus on, um, on cash flow generation and, and intrinsic value. He then moved that to capturing entire streams of cash flow from buying entire businesses, which was an entirely different model altogether, um, using surplus cash to, to maintain um, opportunity or to, to take opportunities in, in publicly traded stocks when you could see them. Um, and at the same time, creating his own very specific securities that only he could do in the unique situation that he was in. And his final morph, and I'm not sure that there is going to be another one because I don't think he will, he will live long enough for that, but he doesn't need to, is to go from cash generation to cash consumption. He was looking at industries in which he could make a, he could build his own moat and extend the moat that he refers to by deploying his capital at a speed, depth, and intensity in industries that could, could use that capital, vast amounts of capital, um, to create what he calls 100-year strategic advantages. Um, but also, sorry, to sorry to interrupt, Stephen, but also it's, it's not strictly fair to say that he's not concerned. He's sitting on something like $120 billion oh, of cash. If, he if, Buffett, if Buffett was bullish, he would not have that amount of cash on, the, um, you know, on deposit at uh, Berkshire Hathaway today. But he's not worried about cash. That's my point. So you're worried about the debasement of money and you're worried about whether it's going to be confiscated. And he's playing the banjo. He's not saying anything about that. Um, no, he, he, he isn't. And it would be unwise to dismiss Buffett because he's, he has a habit of trashing any critics. Um, and he doesn't, like, and he doesn't like gold either, which doesn't make a lot of sense. In, if, if, if you as a value investor is saying you're worried about the debasement of money, him as a value investor is saying, 
gold is just this metal that's in the ground and you mine it and stick it in a safe and it's, it has well, no value I'm, to me. From a, from a cash perspective, from, from a, from a, depending, it depends very much on what the alternative is. I mean, if, if, if there's an alternative between buying a cash-producing, value-creating asset and a, an asset that has none of those properties um, and has a cost of carry, then, then he's right. But they're two different arguments. And I'm not I think, Tim, you have made this argument or you've made this distinction in one of your recent letters. So you're not compa- I, I, I think it was you, that you're not comparing like with like. You, know, you can, if, you, if you compare putting money into a business with gold, then yes, that's a, a, um, it's a spurious um, comparison. But if you're looking at preserving cash, and protecting against disaster, then that's an entirely different decision you have to make, and you can't conflate the two. Um, and also, I believe that having money in a business will be better protected than having money as an individual. Um, governments, successive governments, don't really understand business. They don't understand business. All they know is that they need businesses for employment, and they need businesses to to pay taxes somehow, but they don't really understand the process of value creation. They don't understand the nature of risk. They don't understand the the huge benefits that accrue to having a corporate structure. So I believe that having cash in the business is protected to a different order of magnitude than having cash in the bank will be. I think that's 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 exactly fair. The the other thing I'd add is is that. Yeah, again, the, the comparisons are, uh, are are problematic because we, we we never compare with Buffett. We're never comparing apples with apples. In where I'm coming from is there's there's utility to having let's say a productive asset, uh, a, a share in a real business that can grow in the real economy. But there's also some utility in let's say having something that's a store of value. Let's say in currency terms, if you've got a pile of dollars that's just dwindling away. Uh, in in real terms over time, and that's that sort of productive use of capital. It over time, it may be that a that a that a, an amount of bullion will be a better use of capital, or an amount of a a well producing gold mining company that's bought at a fair price will be a particularly good use. But the the way to look at it, for, if you like, a science scientific perspective is, you know, we know what a kilogram is worth, we know what a, an ounce is defined as, we know what a gram is, we know what a kilometer is. What's a dollar? What's the definition of a dollar? There isn't one. We do know the defi- definition of an ounce of gold because yeah. an ounce of gold is consistent through space and time, and it's completely fungible anywhere in the world. Uh, what's the definition of a dollar? So whenever people are talking about, say, gold in dollar terms, they're looking at it through the wrong side of a telescope. The issue is not is not what what gold's worth in dollars. The issue is what's the dollar worth. There's another that, there's another aspect to that, Tim. Sorry to cut in, but it's not yeah. it's not. You see, the question isn't really for me whether you buy a company that's producing cash or whether you buy gold. It's when you buy gold, and that's that's the that's the bit I'm I'm most interested in. Where if, to pick to, up to pick up to, from what Stephen's been saying, I'd say the time, let's say, to be con- seriously considering buying or adding to uh, let's say a hard asset allocation is precisely that point at which you you believe the monetary system. Is closer than it's ever been to, to completely breaking apart at the seams. So exactly, so no, exactly. When you acknowledge that the that the 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 the, 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 the 
stable equilibrium in, in money has suddenly shifted to be an unstable equilibrium. You can't time because it's impossible. You can't tell which snowflake is going to cause the avalanche, which which bit of weight on the on the branch of the tree is going to cause the branch to collapse. You just acknowledge that the system's no longer safe anymore. Yeah. And at that point, and, then it makes absolute sense I, to there's a lot of confusion um, around gold because gold has has different uses depending on what it is you're, what risk you're trying to mitigate and unless you have a very clear understanding of the risk that you're trying to mitigate gold will either be a very good or a very bad answer um, my suggestion to business owners at the moment is to have at least their authorized capital, at least their authorized capital, uh, their issued capital, sorry, um, represented by gold coins or gold bullion in their balance sheet. What do I mean by that? If you have a company that, let us say, has a million pounds of equity of shareholder funds in its accounts, and of that million, 50,000 is represented by issued capital and 950,000 is represented by years of accumulated profits. I would strongly advise any business at this point in the cycle and at this point in the debt um, development of our mature economies to at least have 50,000 pounds worth of gold coins or 40 gold coins in a safe, not in the bank, in a safe on the, on the premises of the business. And the reason that I say that is because if there is a collapse in currency, debt, stock markets, we have something of the order of magnitude of 2008 or nine, then I believe that gold, and we're seeing it at the moment, to pushing right up against the edge of its of its um, of its technical of its technical floor at the moment, um, or its ceiling rather. Um, I think um, I think that gold is now trading at all time highs in every single currency except for the dollar and sterling, um, which has to be telling. What I think will happen, and I'm a, I'm a, a follower of Jim Rickert's on this, is that. Gold will be dramatically revalued. And we're not talking about a couple of hundred dollars. We're talking of thousands of dollars, multiples of where it is now. And in that period, there will be great opportunities and great stress. And what you want is one asset that is outside the system that will respond diametrically opposite, in a diametrically opposite fashion to all your other assets. And the only one that I can think of is gold or possibly other precious metals, but gold the the most liquid and the most easily accessible. So by having, let's say, 50,000 pounds worth of gold in your, um, in your balance sheet, if there were to be a material impairment for however long, let's say a year or two, in which, you are, which your, your markets collapse, your income stream drives up, your assets have to be revalued, and you're taking significant losses, then my belief is that one of the best hedges against that in order to preserve your balance sheet integrity will, have, will be gold rising at a, fracture, at a factor of four or five or six or maybe even 10 times, which will counterbalance that and give you 
balance sheet strength in which you can then capitalize on the opportunities to come by taking over competitors, by picking up cheap assets, by picking up businesses in distress, and by, by increasing your market share at that time. And you have to do something um, if you believe that there is a significant possibility of future distress in the markets or your market. And for me, having a, a gold backing to your issued capital, at least, you can take more. If I am, we are, I have a policy of looking at having at least 30% of shareholder funds if we have the cash in gold backing, because I think that will give us massive balance sheet protection in the event of a cataclysmic currency debt central bank crisis. You know, what I'm basically saying saying about that is that you can see it, Tim can see it, I can see it, and I think a lot of, lot of people who are listening to this can see it. Either Warren Buffett is very smart or he's being very stupid here. So, yes, up until now, what he was doing, what he has been doing is right. But what I'm talking about now, now we are talking about the debasement of currencies left, right and centre, and you only have to look at history or Austrian economics, which is he just going to say, I'm not interested in Austrian economics. I'm not going to read that. I've got so many billions that I just don't care. And if he has got all these billions in cash, what would be so wrong with him saying, well, why don't we just put some of it into a hard currency, i.e. gold? You know, even if it's just, you know, 500 million or or 50 million or something like that. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, I I get that the companies will be protected better than the individual, but you can bet your last dollar that if the companies, if the individual is suffering and and individuals are having their savings stolen from them effectively, that is not going to benefit any company on this this planet. No. Apart from perhaps the security companies. It it won't. And and, and, economies don't, don't go to zero. They, the effect is always marginal. You know, it, it, I don't know whether there'll be a 10, 20 or 30% drop in global GDP. I have no idea. Absolutely none. And I'm not even going to start guessing. But it won't be nothing. And because it's not nothing, there will always be opportunity. And there will be chaos. And there will be some new system. But we can, I think Tim has already highlighted this in his excellent writings, there will be a complete realignment. You know, there will be a, a, a wiping out of debt because it's quite frankly unsustainable. You know? And so that will have an effect. And it's just a question of how seriously do you regard that risk and what possible options do you have to keep going because you just don't know when it's going to happen. And if you'd have, if you'd have asked me 10 years ago whether I thought the euro was going to last Till 2010 or 11, I would have been quite clear in saying it hasn't got a cat in the health chance. I massively underestimated the ability, the political will to, sub, to subsume any, any idea of, of economic sanity under the, uh, under the priority of, of survival. You know, we are where we are, but I have absolutely no idea how, how much further central bank balance sheets can be stretched. I have no idea what the maximum level of GDP debt ratio is 
is going to be before the whole thing collapses? Is it 150%? Is it 200%? Is it 250%? I, I just don't know. What is but it in Japan? Is, is it is it 400% or something? I mean, something ridiculous. I think that depends on what you add into it. Balance sheet, off balance sheet, on balance sheets. In Germany, the, uh, the difference between on balance sheets, recognized debt, and off balance sheet liabilities is about 100%. So whatever Germany has at the moment, you can add the same number for the unrecognized off balance sheet liabilities of the government. So who knows? You know, it's, it's a big game of, of lies and obfuscation. Um, and there's a whole generation of politicians who, who've grown up knowing nothing other than this system of, of very unsound money. And I have absolutely no idea how, it, how long it can go on for. All I do know is that the savings class will ultimately be the ones who will pay the bill. I think with regard to the euro, 10, 20 years, 30 years, it's nothing. I mean, if you look at the history of currencies, it's not, not, that doesn't tell me that it's, it's, um, it's surviving or it's stable. It's just, it's still the jury will be out for a very long time. And I, I share your view. I, but I said at the beginning, I know this will collapse. I just don't know when. And what surprised me was when Greece wobbled a couple of times it looked like that was it. It looked like the breakup of the euro, breakup of, of of them leaving. But you know, they got obviously talked into staying and money thrown at the problem. Um, I always thought it'd be Italy that would go first, and again, that seems to be something that that's always bubbling up in the background. Then again, it, other people say that they think it will be Germany leaving, and and you get and you you get a diluted euro that's left. But however it happens, it's the same kind of deal with. With debt, there's what's happened with money being unhinged from from its true value with, of gold from the seventies. The euro is completely you can't value it because it's a it's a combination of of countries that are all moving at different speeds, and this has never worked ever in the history of currencies. So it's it'll, not, it'll, 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 it'll always be like the the Hemingway quote, which is when someone says, "How did you go bankrupt?" and he says, "Well, slowly and then all at once." It yes. happens chaotically. Yes, exactly. Are, are, you, are you interested? In are you interested in my in my view of or my experience of the currency in Germany? I mean, I spent twenty eight years of my life living in Germany. I spent but all of my adult life as an investor and a, an entrepreneur in Germany, and I have always been fascinated by by the Germans and their attitude to currency. Yes, please tell us. Um, and, a, and, a, and a, I was a big fan of the Bundesbank and their very dogmatic and almost Jesuit-like approach to, to currency management. And I have a theory. Um, one of the most beautiful series of banknotes that was ever produced, I think on the planet, um, was the final series of Deutschmark, uh, of the Deutschmarks. Um, and there's an amazing book that was produced by the Bundesbank celebrating the artistry and the the, um, the 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 cultural heritage that went into creating those banknotes, and I don't know whether you can remember them. Um, I have a set of all of them, and I used to test people by asking them if they knew who was on the five, ten, twenty, fifty, hundred, two hundred, five hundred, and one thousand Deutschmark notes. And these notes were works of art. They, they they went through a three I think five year period of design. They were 
intricately produced. They contained a, every single one of the banknotes contained a wealth of information pertaining to that particular person or the the, the, the scientist or the, or the historian or the musician um, woven into the fabric of the of the cloth and the the banknote. It was quite beautiful, absolutely beautiful. The ten the ten Deutschmark note had Wilhelm. Gauss on it, and it had a sextant, and it had the Gaussian distribution formula woven into it. It was beautiful. Anyway, I believe that the the quality of those banknotes, the love that went into creating and designing them, spoke volumes about the value of the currency to that particular society. There was no other society that invested so much intellectual effort into designing its banknotes. Well, that's quite um, funny. If you look at the, the dollars and, and how they all look so similar, you can quite easily mix them up. Yeah, you can. And if you look at all the other currencies and then compare that to the euro, which is as loveless, as boring, as, as unromantic and as senseless as you could possibly imagine, not only the name of the currency, is something that only an accountant could have come up with on one of his less creative days. But the design is the design of the of the notes themselves. If you can compare those two currencies, it tells you everything you need to know. And the Bundesbank had a had a, a very interesting function. The Bundesbank was like the sergeant major in a drill camp for squaddies. It was ruthless and it was tough love. And the the whole purpose of the Bundesbank was to make sure that the external the, the external value of the Deutschmark was managed because they knew it would keep going. So the German industry had this sergeant major who was not going to let up on the training drill whatsoever just because the currency was rising. And they weren't going to let them off through low interest rates. So German industry had to learn during the post-war decades to increase its productivity at a rate that was higher than the value, the annual increase in the va- in external value of the Deutschmark. So you had this incredibly fit German industry through their sergeant major, who had been you know, getting them up at six o'clock in the morning, getting them on a five-mile run, putting them through their paces every single day for decades. And suddenly along comes the euro. And the euro was like you know, sending the sergeant major back to the drill sergeant, <laughs> back home, retiring him. And what happened, and I found this fascinating, was that German industry just kept on doing it because it was so it was so well exercised in its routine. German industry is trimmed in its DNA to eke out productivity gains roughly one or two percent nominal over the nominal rate of inflation because it had to. And it's been doing that forever. And when Schroeder came along with his Agenda 2020 and effectively put a hard freeze on wage increases at a time when wage increases in Germany were starting to become a problem, that locked in Germany's ability to increase its productivity without having the downside of a raising currency. So if you were to deconstruct the euro today into its component parts, and revalue it based on productivity increases, 
my latest calculation is that the Deutschmark would have to raise by at least rise by at least sixty percent, or the the, the the Deutschmark that's encapsulated in the euro would have to rise by about sixty percent in order to get it back into some sort of parity with the 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 productivity weighted increases or decreases of all the other euro constituents. So what you have in the euro is a massive gold standard type Deutschmark, which is just sucking or pushing deflation out to the perimeter and sucking in all these, you know, all the surplus due to its superior fitness. And I find it fascinating to look at it. And I also find it fascinating to see that German politicians, and I've talked to them on a number of accounts, um, have absolutely no comprehension of what those surpluses mean um, and why they are so dangerous. What you've just described, Stephen, is effectively a doomsday machine for Club Med for as long as they remain locked into the euro. Without a shadow of doubt. And interesting, the, the German word for debt is Schuld. And it's exactly the same word as sin or shame. So the Germans have a very, very moralistic view about money. And for them, the surpluses that they're generating are a sign of their virtue. And I remember being asked to address a group of parliamentarians about eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, it was sort of after session, late night, beer and sandwiches and Pringles in the Bundestag. And there were about 30 or 40 who came to listen to me talking. I'm quite sure why I'd had the honor of being invited, but it was our local MP that had, that had asked me to come along. And we were talking about surpluses and, and deficits. And I said, well, I was asked the question, well, you know, what do you think the answer is? The general consensus was that if everybody was like Germany and had a surplus, then it would be fine. And I said, well, where do you think, <laughs> where do you think the surplus is that Germany generally, where do you think they come from? And there was no comprehension that it's a zero-sum game, that for every surplus, there's a deficit somewhere else. And that the surplus that Germany was generating was not a sign, not just a sign of their export prowess, but also of the fact that they, they were having an investment deficit in their, own, in their own economy. There was no ability to comprehend that whatsoever. They thought that if everybody did what Germany did, and had a surplus, then everything would be fine. And there is to this day still no comprehension that a surplus, which is positive, could in any way be bad because it's a sign of virtue. The other problem, of course, with the euro, which is unsustainable and was unsustainable, you may remember that around the time that, that the euro was created, I think, 1999, January, February, the interest rates were around, I think, 7% in the UK, and they were at a similar level in Ireland. And when they joined, they immediately dropped to European levels, which were about, I think, 4% or 3 or 4%. Now, if you, if you drop interest rates effectively by 50% overnight, you get a massive boom in the property market as well as other assets. And that might, that felt obviously very good for people at the time, but there's still, there's always a price to pay at the end of it. You, you, it's not like, it's like the creation of energy. You don't ever get something for nothing. And these European countries that instead of valuing debt at the worst 
possible case, i.e. say Italy, Greece, Portugal, etc., you're valuing debt at the best possible case, which was Germany. And we know from history that none of these other countries had the discipline that Germany had. So you're you're sending the, the valuation model completely in the wrong risk direction when it should be all valued the other way. And again, this is just something that has been lived within the markets for a very long time. The only place that it, it does manifest itself, which is what I keep focusing on, is in the stock markets. That's why the Italian stock market, the Spanish stock market, and the Portuguese stock market, the Greek stock market, are way below their all-time highs. And the German stock market, the, the British stock market, is closer to its all-time highs. So there, whilst there is, there doesn't seem to be any, any way to show this, actually, the most sensitive area is always with companies and company stock prices. And that's where you're seeing it. And and the, the evidence is there. It's completely there. I agree. I agree. And it, um, it, and it is that the euro has been a disaster because it was, you just have to look at the the, defa- the deflationary effects of that of that gold standard of Deutschmark hidden in the euro, that, that massive crushing effect that it is having as it accumulates larger and larger surpluses with absolutely no mechanism whatsoever, nor any political understanding within the German, uh, within Germany, uh, or any political mandate indeed, to to redistribute those surpluses within any, some sort of fiscal. Um, union. As long as that that situation is maintained, um, the the euro and the system, the financial system, is deeply inimical to the um, to the interests of almost every other economy that does not have the same ability to increase its productivity or the will to increase its productivity at the rate that Germany does. And as long as that that economic fact is determines the structure of the euro, it will continue to wreak havoc until it becomes politically unacceptable in in those countries that are suffering the most. Would it be fair to say that you're waiting now for Germany or German companies to to have some form of, of, of greater value before you're stepping back into the market? So you're sitting on, are you sitting on your hands at the moment for that? I am. So you're not looking out at potential frontier markets or you know, pockets of valuations in, say, Asian Asian countries that maybe have been overlooked. Way, way outside my circle of competence. Right. I, I well, prob- no- probably not, but but people like to to do things in the way that they're accustomed to, the habits that you talked about earlier, and that, that kind of makes perfect sense. If you're If the market that you know the best is overvalued, you can either do one or two things. You can sit and wait for it to be valued better, or you can look outside of that area. And it, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just what you decide well, to I've do. Been living, I've been living in Ireland for the last four years. I, I moved to to Ireland um, because I was starting to get homesick for my language. Um, and at the time that I made the decision, it looked very much as though um, Mr. Miliband and Mrs. Sturgeon were going to create an unholy alliance and drag Britain Kicking, kicking and screaming back to the 1970s, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to give, I'm going to miss this one out, um, and see what happens. And have been watching events from my little perch in Delgany, um, in County Wicklow, which is a 
great place to be, at least for the moment. And I, I did think that possibly it would be quite fun to look at some restructuring businesses in Ireland. And I very, very quickly came to the conclusion, this is such a closed shop. You know, by the time a deal gets to me, I can be absolutely sure that everybody else has looked at it and said no, right. um, because this is a you know Ireland is an it's an insiders it's an insiders game, um, and I'm definitely not on the inside, um, and I suspect that's very much the same in in other markets as well that are smaller and tighter. I you need to have your connections, you need to have your accountants and lawyers and M and A advisors who know and like you and have your business card and give you a ring when something interesting comes up. And you can't duplicate that in every market in the world. You just can't do it. Um, That's so interesting. And, That's so interesting. And, yeah. you know, the markets that I'm in are very, very inefficient. And they're inefficient because buyers and sellers don't find each other very easily, in which case you have to create your own small informal networks to allow you to participate in those markets. I'm sure you're right that there are some great opportunities. I keep hearing that, that the value boys are all in, in Japan at the moment, and I'm sure that's right. I haven't had time to look at that. I would have to acquaint myself with Japanese accounting techniques. I would have to talk to a couple of people who had, who had made successful investments in Japan. I do, we do have some Japanese business in one of the company, or two of the companies that I own, and I'm planning to go to Japan, so that might be a good opportunity to just talk to people. But um, until I have you know, feet on the ground and, and contacts that I can talk to and get the inside feel for, for markets and for valuations, I would avoid them. Failing that, just, you, just, you just partner in with someone who implicitly is trustworthy and has exactly the same mindset and does have boots on the ground. That's true. But finding them is really, really, really difficult. Granted. But but that's actually for buying a company that's distressed and then obviously turning it around or selling the assets. But with regard to just straightforward investment, you would just be able to presumably read the the accounts. You made a very important point about the differences in, in accounting systems and you have to be knowledgeable of the local ways of valuing um, you know certain things. Otherwise, you, you're not looking at like for like. But once you've got over that 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 hump, as it were, then one should be able to find value anywhere. I mean, as a technical analyst, I can look at a chart of any market and get a view. I'm not saying it's as easy to do that with value investing, but from the little knowledge I have, you are looking at base principles, um, which are which are similar or should be similar no matter what company you're looking at. That's true enough. I, I, I would accept that. But um, if you make as few decisions as I do... Um, and uh, you know, I don't tend to make more than one or maximum two a year. Um, I I do try and keep my my circle of competence as tight as possible. And and there's just you know, Germany is a huge economy. The UK is a huge economy. I've done very little in the UK. I'd love to do more, but my focus has been Germany. And Germany is an is a is an emerging market as far as capital markets are concerned. The Germans have this very naive approach to finance. Um, which has stood them in good stead, no doubt. But the the, the largest part of entre- the entrepreneurial community has absolutely no idea about finance, balance sheets, the way that valuation 
it just, I mean, I teach, you know, I've got a, I, I started last year teaching people because I was just so appalled by the lack of financial acumen in the Mittelstein companies that I was, uh, that I was approaching or that, that I was interacting with. Given your, I loved it. given your unique position of living in Ireland, doing business in Germany, what is can you get a an idea of what they think about Brexit at the moment from both both of those places? <laughs> um, when I'm asked by friends in Germany, so what do you think about Brexit, Stephen? I look long and hard at them and say, are you sure you want to hear this? <laughs> because firstly, it's going to we're going to spend the rest of the evening talking about it. Secondly, I'm going to shock you because I don't have the opinion that I think you think I have. And thirdly, we may well get into an argument that won't survive dinner. Yes. So are you sure you want to do this? I want to warn you, this is, I didn't start this, okay? <laughs> and I say, no, 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 please. <laughs> and, and it always ends the same way. Stunned silence that somebody who they have previously deemed as being reasonably intelligent and civilized could be quite as vehement and anti-EU as I am now outing myself to be. I can't wait for us to leave. And I have never felt more patriotic, more English or British, and more proud to be British than at this moment in history. I can't wait for the country to leave and for for finally, for the denouement to come and to show the EU that there is a different way of doing things, that British parliamentary system is capable of delivering a, a verdict that may be massively uncomfortable for the ruling elite, but that will, over time, and it won't take very much, restore a semblance of parliamentary democracy and economic sense back into the running of the country. I'm, I'm hugely hopeful. I don't think I've been as positively energized by a changing government as I have been since 1979. Um, I think that given all the, the opposition and the strictures and the, the, the ad hominem attacks on Boris Johnson, I think the, the contrarian view is you'll get it through he will go to the country in the spring, he'll come back with a resounding majority, and he will do all the things that he's now set up to do. And he's, you know, he's running a, a long six-month election campaign, and he's got the levers of power and the funding to do it. He's going to make a bloody good fist of it. Um, he's got the right people. He's got, finally got leadership rather than this limp-wristed ab abdication of responsibility to the country. And I, 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 I strongly hope and believe that the probable outcome is a messy but short-term pain of a, a Brexit on the 31st of all. And bloody good job, too. I think, I think my tears have, have caused my computer to short-circuit. <laughs> tears of high emotion. <laughs> so, and, but, you know, I, all, I almost, I almost, almost, almost came, I'm on the cusp of making a decision to just come back to England because I just, I want to be back home when all these things happen. And either we'll be in the street with pitchforks 
<laughs> on the 1st of November or we will the biggest be... Halloween street party in history in history and I just want to be there for it but I have never ever had any political ambitions whatsoever but sort of there's a stirring in me now that says you know I, I couldn't be worse than some of the clowns that are there at the moment and I would just love to be part of whatever is going to happen afterwards. Are they are they are they in Germany angry that we want to leave, or do they think we're stupid that we want to leave, or what? Or do you not know? Um, I do know. I, I, I think I know as much as anyone can generalise. Um, there is a thirty years of EU propaganda has not been without effect. It really hasn't. It, you know, there, there is this great belief that somehow the EU is responsible for peace rather than NATO. There is a, a belief that it's the institutions of the EU that are guaranteeing stability and harmony and brotherhood across across Europe. Whereas in fact for for all the proselytizing of the EU, there is there is plenty of evidence plenty of evidence that the major instruments of EU power are going to be are more divisive and we've talked about the, the, the euro I believe that that is an absolute design um, irrespective of the fact that it's lasted for the best part of 20 years the damage that it's done is is going to take generations to repair but also this intrusive undermining of national sovereignty will at a time when the trend is towards smaller, and more efficient government units and not towards ever larger ones. It's flying in the face of history. So there is a, the Germans believe the song that they've been told to sing for 20, 30 years. Chancellor Kohl did a huge amount of damage by, by tying very cleverly the whole European project to a broader vision and coupling it with the word stability because the Germans more than any other nation in Europe, value stability. They've, they've had really bad experiences with, with volatility. Um, they are not nearly as pugnacious and as used to strife and conflict as the Brits. You know, we love a good punch-up. The Germans absolutely hate it because they're terrified of what it could evolve into. And, and so there is this feeling that don't touch it. Don't, don't break it. Don't, don't, don't deny it. Um, and everything will be fine. All the words that are words like stability and and peace and these are such they have they're so emotionally laden in Germany that, and social uh, that any attempt to criticise the European Union is seen automatically as antithetical to those values. So they're terrified of it. But they had the Bundesbank though. Surely, when when they lost that that discipline. When, aren't they completely up in arms about what's going on with, with their with their European neighbours and and the debt they're getting into and 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 the amount of times they need bailing out and all that? Can't they see that that's just that's just well, understand? Which is why you've got parties like the AfD and the uh, Linke um, making such massive inroads into uh, into the German parliamentary system, which is absolutely terrifying them. It's terrifying them. The, the whole idea of the populism is making them sort of circle the wagons even tighter. But mm. what they don't realize is that there is a groundswell of, of, of criticism and of um, 
disavowal of the whole Euro project that the Germans absolutely hate and always have done, which is why they've never been asked in a referendum. The Germans have never been asked. They've never been given the choice. They've never had a political party that says unequivocally we're against it until the AFD came along. Now, the AFD are very, there's some very nasty right-wing nationalists in that party. But when it started, it was a protest party from the the CDU, CSU. And, And you can... You can bet your bottom dollar or bottom euro that in the coming election season, there the emphasis will be on ensuring that the integrity of the German fiscal system, and the promise will be that there will never be transfers to the weaker parts of Europe, which is what you know all the Germans are terrified of. The fact that it's happened through the banking system is neither here nor there and another part of the huge dishonesty which has been foisted on the European people and the Germans. But the Germans are, are, are caught in this idea of, number one, we want to keep our money, but on the other hand, please don't rock the boat and do anything that will leave us vulnerable to forces of volatility. And I don't know how that particular circle is going to be squared. This uh, looming global recession couldn't really come at a worse time for Europe, could it? It couldn't. It couldn't. It really couldn't. And my, my guess is, Tim... That, he, he, uh, he said with a, an increasingly broad smile spreading across yeah. his face. And my guess is that the, um, there is a not small probability that Brexit will take place on the 31st of October at a season which is unusually prone to, how should I put it, uh, structural adjustments in the world's financial system. Yes, September and October... Are not you know the reason for it? You know, people come back from their summer holidays. The portfolio managers come and start making adjustments of a strategic nature once they've had a bit of time to think. They come back, they start doing things in the second half of September, which then start accelerating. The mood, the mood changes and, as well. The nights draw in, the nights get colder. People get a little bit more gloomy, possibly. Yeah. Relative and to the summer, they want to preserve any any gains that they may have made during the the, the year. And I think we are setting up for a at least a high probability, I, I, I never deal in certainties, but there is a high probability of, of the summer, of the autumn of 2010, developing significant period of, of adjustment in world financial markets. And my belief is that Brexit will take place right in the middle of it. And, and just follow, follow, what, follow that. One, one final question on, on this is, uh, how about in Ireland? What's, what, what do they think? I was at the um, one of my favourite festivals, and I go to a literary festival, a couple of literary festivals a year. And my favourite one is the Boris Festival of Writing Own Ideas, and it's um, it's a lovely it's a lovely event at Boris House in Carlo, uh, run by Hugo Jellett, and it's an amazing it's an amazing event, always with great people. This time, however, it was a it was such a the whole thing was overshadowed by vicious really vicious personal attacks on Boris Johnson, um, a, a binning of the entire British population and the ludicrousy of Brexit. And the cheerleaders were um, Fintan O'Toole, who just published a book called Heroic Failure, which I started reading and then tore up in rage. Um, and he was on the podium with a chap called Misha somebody or other, who is a writer. And the tosh that they were talking to huge applause from 
a mostly Irish intellectual audience was terrifying. You know, I, I, I've almost had myself banned for life from, from <laughs> Boris Festival by daring, say, by daring to stand up and say, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know anybody who was influenced by Facebook advertisements, who was moved by Russian bots, who was, who, who has neo-imperialist ambitions, who doesn't like, you know, colored people. It's, it's all absolute tosh that you've made up. It's all made up nonsense. And for you to sit there in Ireland pontificating and literally lapping it up and enjoying the pain and misery of your largest trading partner is remind me a little bit of, you know, those kids who run out, kick somebody and then go and hide behind their big brother. And if big brother goes, and I think, uh, I think Varadkar and Coveney are making an absolutely hideous mistake by playing up to green nationalist um, sentiment at a time when they really don't have a reverse option anymore. I don't know what's going to happen. All I do know is that Britain will be magnanimous in dealing with the border, with Irish issues, and that Boris Johnson and his government will make absolutely sure that none of this vituperative, petty hissing from the Irish government and the chattering classes around Leinster House, that they will that that will have any influence on the way that Britain deals with, with Ireland. I think once we're out, we will need to come to very positive working arrangements with, with Ireland, as we will need to do with the entire EU, and that is entirely possible. Well, fantastic. Tim, media picks. I, I've got just one brief one, but it's actually one that, I've got one very brief one that Stephen's actually managed to sort of trump, because I... I spent um, a day reading Rod Little's The Great Betrayal, The True Story of Brexit, which was, uh, without any disrespect, was tossed off quite quickly as a sort of a pot boiler in the immediate aftermath of sort of change of government. Um, it's a bit gloomy reading, but to be honest, I think it's now effectively almost irrelevant to the extent that, uh, as I think Stephen's already um, alluded, you only had to see the first Prime Minister's questions with Boris at the helm in Parliament a week ago to realise that everything has changed. The whole mood music has changed. The, the, the whole characteristic of, of government has changed. And I think the whole nature of our relationship with, the, with Brussels has changed. So this is, this is a brave new world now. Uh, I'm not as, I don't think I'm quite as upbeat on Stephen as, in relation to the potential. But my God, I mean, I could, I could listen to this all day. So um, the Rod Little book, I say, is, is, is quite fun for people who are sort of inclined to sort of just, you know, for people who haven't had enough sort of Brexit porn. But um, <laughs> the, 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 the country has just undergone this amazing transformation. And I hope to God that it, 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 is, it is followed through uh, on time at the end of October, because I'm just as upbeat on the, the prospects for, for the country, particularly in light of the problems that are now starting to sort of peep out from under the woodwork in the Eurozone, but also in the States, the whole sort of kind of global trade wars backdrop. Um, this is an amazing time to be alive, and it's an amazing time to be optimistic about our future. Have you read any of um, uh, Rhys Mogg's dad's books um, that he wrote in the... Probably in the 80s, I think. Mid, Mid-1990s. Uh, the last one was called The Sovereign Individual. Yeah. And it's... It's still in publication. He wrote it with an American colleague called Jim Dale Davidson, and they had a, a newsletter, an investment newsletter called The Strategic Investor, uh, which I took 
between 1994 and 1998, I think, when it was uh, when it folded. Was that, did they not do the Fleet Street I, letter as well? Did not do the Fleet Street letter? May, may have done, but he wrote an amazingly prescient book called The um, Sovereign Individual, which if you haven't read it, I strongly recommend that you do read it because yep. it framed a lot of my thinking 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, and it's, it's still as fresh as it was then. And the ideas are just as relevant, and particularly in the Bre- looking at Brexit in a much larger mega political context. Um, it's a, it's a, a useful, it's a useful um, approach to thinking about the development of the nation state over the next, I don't know, 50 years. And he was, he was bang on. Paul, anything from you? I'm, I was just thinking about the, the the fact that the EU, like peace, what you were saying about peace in the EU, is they, they're saying it's because of the EU, but it seems to be it's despite the EU. And actually, tragically, because of it, because of the imbalances, it's made everything more unstable. That if it does break up, it's just going to be a whole lot worse. It's like it's like suppressing volatility in a market un un unnaturally eventually that that lid kind of blows off and when it does you know it just causes a thousand you know ten thousand times more damage than it would have done had that that system being allowed to to operate normally so when you try to compress a system it eventually it will eventually push back at you and and that's I, i guess is what where we're headed to so the fact that we're going to be out of it you know is um can't come any quicker really and 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 that at a time in which America is withdrawing from its role as guarantor of global peace, and is through its its increasing self reliance on oil, and it's I think America was a net exporter of oil for the first time sometime this summer to the, to the tune of a million barrels or something. Um, America has has no real interest anymore in being the world's policeman um and for the eu to start destabilizing at a time when that is the case and also to be antagonizing the the most military experience the the partner with the largest military capability the only one with a really functioning fleet and a history of of um of of military experience um is absolute lunacy absolute lunacy to being antagonizing the United Kingdom and not doing a deal with this from a geopolitical standpoint, irrespective of, of, of its own small-minded um, wagon-circling activities. But to do that at this time in history is nothing short of madness. And again, Britain will be magnanimous. Britain will forget very quickly once we're out, and we will do a deal, and we will come to security arrangements, and we will come to internationally acceptable um, funding arrangements for, for science and technology. So there is no doubt in my mind that Britain will be an extraordinarily good partner for the, for the EU and for Europe once we're out. No doubt in my mind. So that's a perfect positive outlook to have. And I think that that's, and it's right as well. So I think Stephen's provided such an articulate uh, defence defense of of brexit that um i'm just dissolving into tears of, of pure joy 
Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's it's just been amazing. Um, mine, um, just to uh, to maybe dissolve us into tears of of uh, a, a different type would be to watch the Amazon Prime uh, documentary called The God Plant, which is about cannabis. Obviously, this is uh, all in the news at the moment. And personally, I don't know enough about it. And I'm looking to do more and more research on cannabis and its medical benefits. Aren't we all, Paul? Aren't we all? <laughs> now, now I've never, <laughs> I've never smoked it, and I've, I've never taken it. I don't, don't know. And if I had, I would have no reason to not admit it, you know. So, but I haven't, and so I'm I looking to get some of it. No, no, no. I'm just joking. Um, but watching this documentary, it was, it's just incredible. Um, I, I was speaking to somebody of a few a few months ago who has some knowledge about cannabis and he said have a look on youtube there's a video of of a model t ford car and they are whacking it with a sledgehammer and it is just bouncing back it's made out of hemp it's one of the strongest materials and one of the most flexible materials ever it's better for clothes it's better for for you know making strong materials and apparently according to this other documentary it's incredible when it comes to the health benefits now i'm still sifting this information and processing it and i don't know how much of it is right and what's wrong but if even if it's 10% right it's going to be a massive shift for us to a to consume it and be to use it in everyday products. So I would I would look at it and uh and see what you think. But the God plant, I think the name is is correct. Okay. It's um it's just incredible. I and mean, there, there's a sto- there's stories of I mean me- the medical stories are amazing on their own. I mean just like anecdotally incredible. But you know, we we can't we can't um we, we can't legalize it quick enough. We we're getting a pretty good idea of God's basic staple. So he pays in gold. <laughs> he, he uses he uses cannabis, and I'm sure there are one or two. I just one or two other things, and you've got all of God's God's toolkits. Absolutely right. Absolutely, but you he know, also, he also has a taste for English champagne. I'm strongly uh, advised. <laughs> yes, brilliant. So. Sir Stephen, what is your media pick for us? Well, in Ireland, we're fairly limited because we don't get Amazon Prime. Or the only thing that's on Amazon Prime is um, what's that car program called? Um, oh, the uh, the Grand Tour. Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, the Grand yeah. Tour. The Grand Dad. <laughs> That's all you get on on the Irish. Can, um, can you get C Can you get C facts or Oracle? Sorry? <laughs> can you get C facts or Oracle? <laughs> No, we're still on AOL for our. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, advanced compared to CFA. No, the, I, I don't have a. I don't have an intellectually clever media pick, but I went to see see the film with my kids, um, who are between the age of fifteen and nineteen, so they're not really kids anymore. But um, they insisted on going to see Rocket Man, which was the which is the film of Elton John's life. And I came away from that film thinking, you know, he was absolutely brilliant. Elton John, amazing. My kids are listening to his music round the clock. I listened to his music round the clock. I grew up with him. And I had no idea that he had such a difficult, tortured life. But 
amazing, amazing British artist. Um, I think he at one stage was selling the most records of, of any artist in the world um, at one particular stage in his career. But it's a superb film. Oh, right. You get over the... It's a really, really, really... The two good, two great films are both about British artists. Um, the, um, the Freddie Mercury yes. biographical film and, the, and Rocket Man. And Rocket Man is superb. I, I'm pleased you say that because I'd heard that it that it wasn't so good. I read some reviews and heard people had said it wasn't actually. And so I'm pleased that you've redressed that. Yeah, you, you must. Because, um, I mean, we grew up with him. So and he, Yeah. So you're a big fan anyway, but I think maybe for people who who like me who think his music's great but wouldn't necessarily listen to it or you know put it on put it on to listen to, but will you know happily listen to a tune if it's on if it happens to be on. Um, and my book, it's by a woman called Naoke Abe, and it's called The Sakura Obsession, which is a book about plant hunts that save Japanese Japan's cherry blossoms, um, and it's an incredible story of a very eccentric Englishman who went around um, samples and specimens from, from the very wide range of cherry blossoms in Tokyo in the last century, or the end of the 19th century, and explains the history of these cherry blossoms because when, when Japan created an empire, the emperor brought together all the various tribes and clans, and they all had to have their, set, their, their operation center, each one of the clans, in Tokyo, in the imperial city. And each one of these clans bought their own specific cherry blossom or cherry tree type with them. So there was this huge profusion of different cherry blossoms um, at the end of the 19th century. And they, in, the, in an earthquake at the beginning of the modern period of Japan, um, many of them were destroyed and the government then decided to impose this sort of uniformity on Japanese culture. And they chose just one. And that was the one. It was the, the euro of the cherry blossoms. Um, and they imposed it. And all the others were then banned. And over the last sort of 20 years, there has been a resurgence in the interest in these you know, individual local types of cherry blossoms. And... The only ones that were in existence were in this in this greenhouse and um, uh, and uh, arboretum in England, collected by this um, this gentleman and his um, and his um, um, and his family and maintained there. And it's a great story of uh, of how something as simple as a plant came to symbolize diversity and then conformity and then slowly but surely a resurgence of diversity um, within the culture. It's a fascinating book. And, of course, there is a very eccentric Englishman at the middle of it, as always in these great stories. <laughs> that sounds absolutely brilliant. How fantastic. It's called the, they call the Sakura Obsession. Excellent. Well, we'll put links to all of that on the uh, in the show notes. If somebody wants to get in contact with you, Stephen, how would they go, go about that? Stephen at goodandprosper.com. Twitter as well? I am um, at goodandprosper. Fantastic. Well, well, we'll add links to that to the show notes. And But, uh, I'm, but I'm very, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've not yet got to the point that Tim has where 
he is producing lots of Inanity original content. I, 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 I'm, I just, I just find it fascinating to see how many intelligent people there are producing stuff. And I'm still at the stage of just piggybacking on other people. I haven't yet produced a single word of intelligent uh, original content on Twitter. Um, I'm dead to you. <laughs> Tim, your um, your your weekly is going to be out tomorrow, is it, or is it out in the middle of the week? Uh, some some of some of them have, have snuck out already, um, uh-huh. but it's uh, it's it's a, a fairly uh, no holds barred attack on the Economist for being well, effectively for being the EU communist magazine. Um, <laughs> oh my god, I you can write that. Haven't you published that already? I, 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 yeah, that's 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 out in the wild already. So, um. <laughs> brilliant, fantastic. Well, um, if you, I, I don't know whether you want, whether you want or need a word of encouragement, but please keep writing your stuff. It's absolutely superb. I, I, I forward it on more times than you could imagine. That's very kind. Thank you. I second that, Tim. It's excellent stuff. So, Stephen, it's very been good. an absolute pleasure having you. Really has, yes. Thank you so Thank much. You. For com- Thank you so much for coming I've on the show. I've enjoyed it very much. Oh, that's a real pleasure. And um, we, we obviously we will have, have you back. we'll have you back. Have you back for the Halloween special? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I would idea. love to do that. I would. A, I will come to London if you have a if you have a Halloween special in done, London. Done, come. done, sir. Yeah, done. It's done. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> okay. Brilliant Take care. Stuff. Have a good one. Enjoy your too. weekend. Bye bye. See you soon. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you to everyone and all us all the support we've got, all the likes and subscribes. It's really fantastic. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out Tim's latest weekly. It's always a good read. And the podcast, if you want to leave us a message, we are at every single place you can think of pretty much uh, as a podcast. And you can leave a message at anchor, anchor.fm forward slash state of the markets. Leave us a message and we might even play it on the show. So all it leaves me to say is obviously thank you to Sir Stephen. Thank you to Tim, as always. And we'll catch you next time. All the best. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye. See you. Bye. Thank you. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. At the risk of the risk of formality, uh, would you prefer Stephen or Sir Stephen? Stephen, please. Okay. Stephen, right. Well, we have to get to the bottom of the Sir part of that but as if, well. But if but if we introduce you as Sir Stephen, would that would that make sense? Well, you know, I, to be honest, there is a there's an interesting background story to it. I mean, I was um, I I got the gong because I'm a member of the Order of the Nation of Grenada, which was awarded to me and. A, group of us who were helping the government of Grenada. In fact, it was an interfaith mission organized by the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church in Grenada 10 years after the um, the two um, horrific hurricanes, I think in 2004 and five, devastated about 90% of the infrastructure of the island. And successive UK governments had reneged on their promise to deliver um, necessary funding and the two churches in their desperation um and i don't know whether you've ever been into the island but it's it's just appalling the state of you know the government house the governor's mansion the house of parliament the cathedral they're all the schools they're all in a dreadful state um and i was asked to go along as part of a group of um interfaith 
as an interface mission to raise funds and to put some political pressure on and just to create a little lobby group uh, um, to jolly things along to much needed funding for them. And as part of that delegation, we had a, um, a cardinal from, um, from the Vatican. So we were automatically qualified as a diplomatic mission, which was quite fun. Um, and we received these honors in the exchange of honors, um, which was very nice. And I was told that because the queen is the head of state and because I'd been given this honor um, by an act of parliament the day before, um, I was then entitled to use the title. Well, it was then part of my name. And that created quite a ruckus in, in the UK and a group of people close to the palace decided that it really wasn't a, a very good idea for all these strange little islands to be giving their own gongs um, and then outlawed the use of them in the United States. So I, I'm not going to comment on the, on the political um, on the political aspect of that, but I, I, I'm not allowed to use it in the UK. It's in my passport, and I'm allowed to use it outside. So I, it's too complicated for me. So I don't tend to use it very much, but it's there, and it's part of my name. It seems a bit mean, doesn't it? They, they won't let you use it outside the UK. I mean, if it was given fair and square... The language which they describe the, um, these honours perfectly legitimate for these governments to give them if they want to. Yes. Um, if I if I describe the language that with which they describe these honours, then you will be sucking your teeth. Definitely not work. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, uh, are you happy to include that in the show, or would you rather not? It's up to you. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Whatever you like. Okay. 